Our guest this week on Veterans Chronicles is Daniel Durso. He is a U.S. Army veteran of World War II. He served in a tank battalion in the European theater. And Mr. Durso, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Well, let's start at the very beginning of your story. When and where were you born? Why, I was born in a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania, Freeland, Pennsylvania, the years that most of us were in 1924. And talk about growing up in that community uh, as a child. Obviously, when you were about five or so, the Great Depression hit. Uh, what was it like uh, in your family? Well, I'll tell you what. Growing up during the Depression as a teenager was a tremendous challenge. There was all kinds of uh, sacrifices that had to be made. And there are a lot of stories that I could tell uh, that took place in my family in, uh, during Depression days. And one was an example where there were eight children. So uh, eight children and my mother made nine people. Now the ice cream store down in town sold two dips of ice cream and a dip of ice for a dime. And each Friday, we would get three ice cream cones. Each person would either get a ice cream or a ice or a cone. And this was set up in such an efficient way that it revolved, and everybody got an equal treat all the time. Now, that was one of the kind of things that happened within the family. And other, in fact, that's when we got our first radio, by the way. We got our first radio in 1937, and that was quite a treat and something, a big change in our family. Something that maybe might be worth saying that during that time, President Roosevelt had a program called the New Deal, and part of that was the WPA. Most people may not have heard of that. It was a workers' program for married men, and each person received $43 a month just to put some money in the house. And another plan was CCC, where young men were taken to work out in the open, and uh, their pay was $18 a month, but they were given food and they were giving a place to sleep. So with growing up, most of the soldiers in the ages, I'm thinking from like maybe 19 to 26, grew up during the Depression, and we grew up with great sacrifices, no pleasure, no entertainment, and we carried the same belief in the same lifestyle right into the army and it gave us an opportunity to challenge the demands the requests that make a good soldier and I think this was one of the things that thousands and thousands of men in the army grew up during that period and took that with them successfully into the service. Mr. Durso you were roughly 17 years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese what do you remember about that event? <laughs> You know, many people ask that question about Pearl Harbor Day. You know, I was in a situation where I did not hear of that till the next day. So I, uh, all the news was all spread by then. And, of course, I didn't have that real jolt that many people did have because I, I wasn't there that first day. But everyone was really in a state of shock and a surprise and now knowing that maybe life would be different. When did you join the service? I entered the service March of 1943. I was 19 years old. And from there, I was called to where the group of us were called to gather at the 
under the canopy of the Refuge Theater in Freeland, where there were cheers, there were tears, and many people crowded around. You know, a lot of people didn't work, didn't have work, so there was a lot of crowds. As we boarded the bus, St. Anne's Band played God Bless America, and off we went to Indian Town Gap. Indian Town Gap was the indoctrination center, and what I remember about that, that right there you lost your identity. You suddenly became part of this big thing. Everybody, after one day, are wearing the same clothing. Everybody is sleeping in a bunk. You're surrounded by a group of men almost all the same age, and you now became part of that, and you no longer were who you were. That was my assumption that day, as I recall it. Where were you sent for training? Well, I was very lucky. I was very lucky because I went to Camp Campbell, Kentucky, and they never told us till we got there. As a matter of fact, five of the men from Freeland, from my own town, also went to this location. We went there for the formation of a tank battalion, the 702nd Tank Battalion. And that was a tremendous advantage because... It was like like starting a class. Everybody started from the beginning. The training was right down the line, and it was very effective and much better than walking into an organization that was already operated and tried to fit in. We had the opportunity of being part of something brand new, and it was really pretty exciting. And what role did they give you in the tank battalion? Well, after a short while, you were assigned to different responsibilities. I became the gunner. I became the gunner in one of the 45 tanks in the battalion, and our training went from there to Tennessee, where we went to Tennessee maneuvers. Talk about how easy or difficult it was to learn what it was like to operate a tank. Frankly, it was not hard to learn because it was so interesting and so challenging that it became like like fun. And you were among men with a happy attitude, and everybody had the same challenge, and everybody was trying to get the same results. So actually, it it wasn't it wasn't much of a challenge. It was more of something new in life, a new experience, and uh, it all went on from there. What type of ammunition were you firing out of your gun? Well. The tank, uh, we had a Sherman tank. Sherman tank weighed 32 ton. The main gun was a 75 millimeter. It also had a 50 caliber on top. I had a 50 caliber also as part of my queuing in. And there was a 30 millimeter down front. 30 caliber, I'm sorry. 30 caliber down front, a 50 caliber on top, and a 75 millimeter in the heavy gun. We're speaking with World War II veteran Daniel Durso, U.S. Army veteran of World War II. We'll be right back on Veterans Chronicles. Welcome back to Veterans Chronicles on the Radio America Network. I'm Greg Columbus. Thanks for being with us. Honored to be speaking today with Daniel Durso. He's a U.S. Army veteran of World War II. From Kentucky, you were sent to Kansas and then eventually to New York before heading overseas. How well prepared do you did you feel at the time to eventually go into battle? You know, the whole thing was so well planned that I think we almost felt like professional soldiers. At least that was the attitude among the group there. We knew each other from the very first day. Everybody was part of this big family, you might say. And the moving from Kentucky in the summertime, Tennessee in the fall and into the winter, Kansas in the cold of the winter, 
and then to New York. We hit all four seasons, which gave us a great opportunity of being able to handle any type of weather, which is a big factor if you're on the field or in the Army. And then from there, uh, you know, we went uh, to New York, went across on the Mauritania. We went on the Mauritania, which was a ship, I guess, an English boat transported into a, I guess, to an Army transport. There were thousands of men on the boat. From there, we landed. And it's interesting because it was just a complete plan how each step you moved closer and closer to Berlin. We went to, we landed at uh, in England, and we went down through England, through the middle of England. In fact, we ended up in Cannock, the very center of England. And an interesting experience there, the German planes would come over every evening. They would go north, they would go south, and they would go east, but they never dropped one shell on Cannock while we were there. And we happened to be billeted there for over five weeks. And I will say we left a tremendously good impression with that community happy a couple of fellows walked away with wives and it was a kind of town like most little american towns and we fit right in so from there then we went to southampton and of course you know what follows that absolutely we just got a a couple of minutes here before we um, hit our first break but talk about going into france when did that happen yes we landed at france oh i guess about the middle of july and this was five five or six weeks after after D-Day, and we landed on a Sunday morning, a bright Sunday morning, a couple of miles south of Utah, the Utah Beach. And from there, we, oh, I must say, the harbor was loaded with boats, as I remember, and it was one beautiful scene. And all of, some of these were unloading. I guess several of them were waiting to unload. And this was still in that, like, almost like a complete track of one thing following another. They were supporting what was going on on land, fulfilling the equipment that was destroyed and so forth. It was almost like a uh, belt, okay, like a belt. From one end, each end developed as you got there. And actually, the government and the Army had this planned out pretty well. Our guest today on... Veterans Chronicles is Daniel Durso. He's a U.S. Army veteran. He served in the 702nd Tank Battalion alongside the 80th Division in the European Theater. And, sir, when you got to France, just south of Utah Beach, uh, your unit engaged in some skirmishes with the Germans. So that is the first combat that you faced. What was the real thing like compared to what you expected? Well, we didn't get into combat right off the bat because... We were used to uh, kind of blockade some of the areas where the Germans might break through, and it was a small thing, so we were, like, moving around quite a bit the first three or four weeks just doing that and uh, having very, very little position. And But then we finally end up at St. Le Mans, and in St. Le Mans we are joined up with the 80th Division. Now... We are joined up with 80th Division, and of course, at that point, we were told that there was something going on at a place called the Gap, and the Gap was a great battle, as it turned out, and this was the word, so they moved us on towards the Gap. And where was that in France? Well, now, you're asking 
questions that maybe I would have to pull out a map again. But let me say that it was probably uh, southwest of uh, Paris, because Paris was the battling. What would really happen was that after the Normandy success, it was felt by the American leaders that Germany would pull behind across the Seine River, and they would set up a great defense, and that is where the great battle was to take place. But as it turned out, the Germans stayed back and continued to fight. And this took about six weeks, as I recall, of wasted time, wasted time in a sense that our Allied troops should have advanced according to our plan, but was affected by the Germans staying behind. And during this fighting, they were kind of pushed over to the west somewhat and into kind of a pocket. And this pocket was in a situation where the Allies or the American troops were on one side, the British and the Canadians on the other side, and as the German tried to escape out through this opening, this outlet, it was a highway, I don't recall the number of it, but it was an outlet. We happened to gather with the British. But prior to that, when we went down to the Gap to fight, we ended up in a town called Organtine. Organtine was the name of the town, or near there is where we were set in. So we we weren't well prepared. We got there and we jammed into battle quickly. We weren't prepared, and we were spread out a little too far. And we moved through the open area and approached the German troops on the outskirts of the town, it was a wooded area, and we didn't expect this, but suddenly there was everything, machine gun fire, some heavy shooting, and as a matter of fact, a Tiger tank, the first time we accosted a tire tank. This tank moved out from behind the building, and it got the tank to my left. It first shot, We now we were pretty close, we weren't more than maybe 500 yards, the shot hit the lower track of the tank to my left, and suddenly the side of his tank faced me, and myself and a tank to the far left really plummeted that Tiger tank and put it out of action very luckily. So we really, I guess it was felt that we were being pushed back a little, so we pulled out. We went back into bivouac overnight, reorganized, prepared, came back the next day, and went right into battle and had a good fight and, in fact, had it locked down the tanks because we got so close that the tank commander didn't want his head out, so we locked down the top and we were operating completely by periscope. And it was pretty successful in the end, and we got through that. Now, there's something I really want to tell you about that experience. When we went back, and I, I never saw this personally, but the tank next to me, when it was hit, that was the tank that was hit by this tiger, the three men up in the turret attempted to escape from the top. And supposedly from the tank on the other side, the commander saw a man, one of those men, flop off the tank. Apparently was shot as he was escaping the tank. And uh, that was it. The next day, when our troops went back up to recover the tank, they found the three men who attempted to leave through the turret neatly laid out all three very neatly next to each other 
covered with dirt. Their bodies were covered with dirt, except that their heads were exposed. And they pulled the aerial, broke the aerial from the tank, planted it in the ground with a piece of white cloth on it, so that our people, I guess, would find them. And I suppose there must have been some compassionate German soldiers to do that to these three men, and so that they could find the bodies. Now, the thing about that is one of those three men was a member of my community, Tom Kochi, a kid from my town. So when I went back on my furlough, I want to tell you this because it is one of the most sorrow and mistakes that I made in my life as a young 19-year-old. I went home on a furlough, and his mother wanted to know more about this story. And when I would walk home, they owned a black Chevrolet with yellow wheels. And I would see this car in front of my home, and I wouldn't go home. And that happened on two occasions. And I really got scolded from my parents because I didn't want to talk to them. But I'll tell you what, I was just young and I was immature, and I didn't know how to tell this weeping mother about her child's death. And till today, I regret very, very much that I had never done that. And I thought I would just mention that. So, How did you deal with it? Uh, you knew this person. It's w- one of the earliest actions uh, of you being in combat. What was your reaction? I didn't see it personally. But, you know, by this time, you're pretty hardened. And you, you, this stuff, you're so busy, you're so involved, that maybe some of this stuff doesn't bother you till 10 years later. And I understand that is the case with many soldiers. And at the time, you just go on. You pick up your gun and you go on. And that is pretty much the way I feel to answer your question. Where did your unit go after the gap? Yes, uh, the Germans were building, they had a strong force in the area of Nancy, Fort Villa de Sec. Now, that was about a 300-mile ride, and we took off, and before getting there, we got to a town called, I think, Chalons, where there was a ordnance, a large ordnance depot. Unbelievably, you'd wonder how that existed without being bombed out. It was so large that they were able to retrack, let's see, 45 tanks. They were, every tank got a complete set of tracks. Every motor was redone or replaced. And then we were sent on to Fort Villa de Sec. Now, Fort Villa de Sec was a, under I understand from reading about it, it was a three-war fort built to guard Nancy. And we got there, and uh, of course, uh, We got set up and sent into battle, and we uh, moved up. And as we moved up, oh, about maybe half a mile or three-quarters of a mile in front of us is this big black monster. And we start moving up, and there wasn't much German resistance in there. And as we moved in to where it got to where things kind of slowed down, and it seemed that we didn't want to fight and the Germans didn't want to fight, and, uh, and we... We kind of just stalemated it and then moved back at night, at dark, at nightfall. We moved back not very far where we could actually see the Germans and they could see us. And they didn't bother us and we didn't bother them because I guess everybody realized there was no sense in anybody getting killed or wounded when there was nowhere to go. Because up in front was the monster and a lot of fighting was taking place out around there, but our particular group 
was stuck right there. Then later, we did eventually go around the town, and we found that it was heavily mined, and because we did lose three tanks, or at least just the tracks by hitting mines, when we went on to our next destination. And where was that? You're getting to the eastern part of France now. What came next? Okay, so we're moving on. Now, as we're moving north, they're talking about the Belgian bulge. And we expected or suspected that that's where we were going. Now, the Belgian bulge was a couple months or so ahead, but there was talk about it. So I guess they knew that the Germans were building up forces there. And on the way, nightfall, we pull into a bivouac into a small town called Las Amiles. We pulled down this dirt lane and left up into an apple orchard. And I recall there was a little church, a stone antiquated church down in that hollow that had beautiful flowers, unkept vegetation around the church. And we pulled up over the church, up into the apple orchard. And our entire battalion spread out. Everything was fine. My tank came up right above the church on the lawn on the bottom end. And we were told that we were going to have a day of rest. So the next day would be a day of rest and prepare us before we moved on. And it was a beautiful situation there in this apple orchard. So the following morning, quiet morning, shadows from the sun on the, the apple trees, you know, had no, no leaves on them at this point. And it was beautiful just flanking all the ground. And I was about to take field bath. I stripped to the waist, turned over my helmet, filled it with cold water. And I was about to shower or wash, and suddenly a shell came over. We heard the whistle, and my God, we were under attack. We were under attack, and everybody runs for shelter. And so I, with two others, ran to the tank crawled under the tank as two of the other fellows climbed up and got inside the tank, and I happened to be on the left side right along the boogie wheels. And we laid there and scared as hell, of course. I was naked to the waist and shaking from cold and also being scared, and the shells began to come in. The first shells were over, and that sounded pretty good, like we could tell you could hear the whistle and you hold your breath and wait for the crack and most were over for, oh, maybe five or ten shells, and we thought, I thought, boy, that's the end of it. This is fine. They missed us. Well, the day before, two men walked through the camp. They seemed a little suspicious, but no one challenged them. In fact, they walked right past my tank and past myself and others, and everyone thought they were friendly freshmen, but later we suspected that they may have spotted us and went back, and eventually the shells began dropping into the orchard. One of the shells dropped right next to the tank where I was under on that very side, and my body went into complete shock. I felt that I was hit by a 1,000 watts, and I, I was able to think, okay, my mind was fine. My mind was fine, and I was grateful for that, but I knew that I was, I knew that my hands and my body was hit because... The shrapnel came in between the bogey wheels and got me on that side. So the shelling continued for oh, another 10 minutes or so. And during this time, I would 
need time to tell you what went through my mind and the thoughts that you get, not knowing if you're wounded badly, whether you're going to go home crippled, will you die? All of this kind of thing goes through your mind at a time when you're laying there waiting for this to end. Well, I eventually was pulled out from under the tank and sent off to a field hospital with some wounds in my hands, arms, and legs. My main body was not touched. My head was not touched. And I was very, very grateful for that. Incredible story, sir. What was the recovery like from that? I came back to the United States. Oh, it's long, you know, you go from a field hospital to a hospital in France, then fly to England, from England to the United States, Rydie General Hospital in uh, Springfield, Missouri, where they, uh, their specialty was hands. And my right hand is damaged badly with little finger. My, my small finger is lost and the other fingers are damaged. But I've managed my life okay with that. And uh, eventually you just becomes part of you and you go through life. Our guest on Veterans Chronicles is Daniel Durso. He's a U.S. Army veteran of World War II, served in the 702nd Tank Battalion, uh, attached to the 80th Army Division. Uh, sir, uh, obviously that was the end of the war for you in terms of combat, but being with this tank battalion, being with the division all this time, I know other stories uh, come to mind uh, when serving with these guys in such close quarters. What are some of the more interesting experiences that uh, come to mind even all these years later? I'd like to tell you that I have an experience. Uh, sometime in May, prior to D-Day, General Patton, by the way, uh, we were in the 3rd Army, General Patton, 3rd Army. General Patton called a meeting of his officers in Southampton, and they requested a honor guard of 48 men from my outfit. And I was lucky to be one of the 48 men selected. The day of the affair, it took place in a small soccer field, and all the officers, hundreds, were up in the bleachers and it was pretty exciting. Stage down below, and car pulls up with the flag and so forth on it and the stars, and General Patton pops out and ran out right over to the honor guard and started down. And he started down the first row. I happened to be in the first row, and I was about the sixth or seventh person down, and he would ask a question or make a statement in front of each boy, rapidly doing this. He got in front of the fellow in front of me, and he said, what is your name? And he gets to me, and he said, where were you from? the person after me, I think you'll make a hell of a soldier, and on down, and that was really, really an exciting part of the experience, and I might say that if you saw the movie Patton, the opening of the movie is Patton expounding excerpts from this very speech that he gave that day. Wow. Now, I could also think of one other experience that I'd like to tell you that I would not like to happen again. We're driving up a dirt lane one of the days in France, and I smoked at the time. I don't smoke now and haven't for years. But I smoked at the time, and I was up on top of the tank. We were moving along this lane, infantry walking along with us. And I happened to lit up a cigarette, and one of the infantry guys called up, Hey, soldier, how about a cigarette? We had lots of cigarettes, by the way, because the rations would have little packs of three or four, I think it was four cigarettes, in each little pack. And you know, they were wrapped in paper, not in not in, in the foil that cigarettes were generally wrapped in at the time. Only two of us in the tank smoked. Three did not. So as a result, we had lots of cigarettes. And so I threw one out, and another fellow said, hey, how about a cigarette? And before you know it, we're having a great time. We were joking back and forth, and I'm throwing cigarettes out. And this went on for maybe about 20 minutes or a half hour up the road. 
So we get back in the bivouac, and one of the fellows from the tank who didn't smoke is standing near the tank with his gun over his shoulder, his grease gun. And he said, hey, Dan, you threw my cigarettes away. And I said, they weren't your cigarettes. They were everybody's cigarettes. He said, no, he said, you smoked yours. They weren't your cigarettes. He said, and and you threw my cigarettes away. You had no right to do that. And you know, it started getting a little hot. And he said, get your gun. And I thought, this guy's challenging me to a duel. He's standing there with his gun over his shoulder. And he says to me, get your gun. And so as I'm working toward, walking towards a thank, and you know, I have no idea. I have no idea what I would have done, what I intended to do, what was going to happen. I have no idea. But as I walked by, all of the guys jumped in. And, you know, it kind of really saved the day. So that was an experience I would never want to have again. So, of course, though, I might, might add that, you know, you're in a tank crew, and the next day you forget all about this because he's there to protect your life, and you're there to protect his life. So you set all of these things aside, and you just go on fighting. That's amazing. That's just absolutely amazing. And you bring up a good point there, and that's that even though you're there for each other, you're fighting for each other's back. You're all, all, all obviously fighting for the American cause, but stress builds and uh, anxiety builds. And you write about this a lot. Uh, one of the things I love about your story is that uh, many years later, you would write notes to yourself, and eventually you put those notes together into um into little booklets. And one of the things that you talk about a lot is dealing with post-traumatic stress. And those sorts of things build uh, and and lead to incidents like that. So talk about your experience with post-traumatic stress and, and what you saw in others as well. Yes. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about this, and uh, one of the basis of it all is fear. Fear of course, sets your whole body in action. And it sets off your body, and what it does, it uh, something in your mind has to block off the fear so that you keep on going. And I think that the idea of fear and change of environment is one of the reasons, one of the reasons, one of the three reasons that I suspect, among many other, that could be a basic cause of post-traumatic stress disorder. I think of another, of two others. One is having to die. Now, it's obvious you're dealing with guns. You are trained to defend yourself. And you also know that the enemy is defending himself. So in order for him to defend himself, he's got to put you in danger. So your life is in danger all the time. And the fear is of dying. You know, and who wants to die or be left crippled? And I could elaborate on that much more. But then the third other point that I felt was very, very hard to accept was having to kill, having to kill another human being. Can you imagine me killing another human being? Well, you had to do this or you did this even if you didn't have to. You just did it and... I thought that having these thoughts in your mind, floating around in your mind, can really be big factors in what causes men to come home with post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, in World War II, you know, it wasn't post-traumatic stress disorder. It was shell shock. Right. And as a matter of fact, I might say 
that you may recall General Patton visiting a hospital in Italy uh, during the war, and he came upon this one soldier, and he said to the soldier, why are you here, as I recall the story? And the soldier said, I just can't make it. And General Patton pulled out his gloves and smacked the guy across the cheeks, the face with his gloves, and he threatened as much as to pull out his gun and threaten to kill him and uh, told him, we don't need such men like you and our troops. And that word got along quite fast. That word got around, and any of the soldiers who felt that they might be breaking down to post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of them really just lived with it. They, they lived with it because of the fear that they would be court-martialed or that it could happen. And that was one of the stresses, the hardships, I think, that was affected a lot of soldiers who had the problem but were scared or frightened from doing it because of General Patton's incident. So I just thought I'd mention that as a little bit of it. So the shell shock thing, and when I get back home, I think there were men who came home with shell shock. But it seemed that with the environment that they came back to, it was like a celebration. In my little town, the entire thing was like a, a carnival for, for months and months and months. And the people getting together and being around people and having an opportunity to maybe get the bars, get into the little bars in the town, meet with other soldiers, and to help each other out. And this went on for months because I don't know if people knew about the 5220 Club. When we came out of the Army in World War II, the government had a program called the 5220. It may have had a title, but that meant that each soldier could receive and sign up for $20 a week for 52 weeks. And this was to kind of put them on their feet or get them going or maybe getting prepared for college or a new job or even a marriage. A lot of girls were waiting to get married, you know, because the men were gone, the marriageable-age men were gone. It really provided a great start for a lot of the men. And actually, until today, I would say some of the World War II men of the few remaining might still find their way to the VFW or the American Legion Club on a Friday and a Saturday night, swallow down some beer, get enough old times, you know, and just go home to his family, raise his family during the week, all his responsibilities, and live with his shell shock. When you look back, Mr. Durso, uh, there's two other things I want to ask you about in our brief time remaining here. Number one is your reaction when the war ended, not just the war in Europe, but the war in the Pacific as well, given all that you and so many others of your generation contributed to those victories in multiple theaters, what was it like when you heard that news? Uh, actually, it, it didn't come as a surprise because our, our nation was so victorious. We were victorious everywhere we went. And I would say, especially in Europe, I know we were on the offensive the enemy was always on a defense. And I think when you talk about attacking the beaches, the uh, other end of the world, uh, it was the same thing. We were always the aggressors. And it seemed that we always came out victoriously. And when the end came, it was just a matter of waiting as to when it would happen. And finally, sir, what are you most proud of, of your time in uniform? What am I most proud of? I guess most proud of of the fact that today I can talk about it. 
I can talk about it, and I have people that will listen to me. And I maybe just am happy to be here and have those thoughts roll around in my mind. And when, as I would say, is that when my mind is at rest and thinking of a thought, a smile crosses my face, and I say that was one hell of a great time. Wow. And I'm sure many good friends that lasted for many years uh, following the war as well. So, Mr. Dursa, we thank you so much for your service to our country, first and foremost, and we thank you very much for your time with us here today on Veterans Chronicles. And, Mr. Dursa, before we let you go, uh, I know that you have put together a trilogy, so please explain what that is and, and what's in it. A couple of years ago, I lay awake at bed at night, and, and who doesn't, I guess, and uh, I started for the first time thinking a great deal about my Army experiences. And I found that I wake up in the morning and forget the experiences or the thoughts that I had. So I began making notes. And I would jump out of bed and make notes, and I had a pile of notes. And I, I take them after a while. I took it into my desk, and I spread them out and put together some sort of an outline. And not just a good pastime. So one day I'm in the basement, and I notice an old boombox there. And I thought, oh, my, I've got a cassette tape here. So I came upstairs, and I pulled the notes out, and I followed the notes, and I put 45 minutes on this cassette tape of my experiences in the Army. Some of the things that I've said today are in my story, and I talk a great deal about post-traumatic stress disorder and examples of uh, how you can avoid it and so forth. And I, I wasn't satisfied. I just kept thinking. And the next part, I took the part where I was wounded and got to France and the France part and got wounded. And then I still wasn't satisfied. That was the second CD of 21 minutes. And then I, I, I got onto this celebration thing. And when I started talking about the celebration after the war, about in the middle of my thoughts, it occurred to me that this entire small town of 6,000 people actually uh, it was a psychological therapeutic group session where everybody in town, everybody in town participated. And everybody participated, and everybody during the war, every man, woman, and child participated. And every man and woman and child was here celebrating. And uh, in the end, uh, everyone kind of recovered and life got back to normalcy. And it's a 45-minute presentation of talking how my town turned into a little carnival, and the bars were very busy, and the bars where the soldiers went after the war to get help from the others, drink beer as medication, and uh, probably their first recovery back to a normal life. And I have this trilogy, and by the way, uh, it is packaged and it is for sale, and you can purchase it by calling 302-422-6800, and that is World War II Soldier Thoughts and Memories Trilogy. Thank you very much. The book is World War II Soldier, and you can get it by calling 302 422 6800. Mr. Durso, thank you so much for your service to our country, and thank you so much for sharing your story on Veterans Chronicles very much. 
Daniel Durso is a U.S. Army veteran of World War II, served in the 702nd Tank Battalion, attached to the 80th Division of the U.S. Army in the European Theater. I'm Greg Columbus. This is Veterans Chronicles. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.